to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 to 9, and we will get right into it. Uh, the title of this sermon is The Divine Cure for Immorality. The Divine Cure for Immorality. Uh, and here we look at this passage as it relates to chapter 6 because Paul sets out to provide not only a diagnosis for sexual immorality, but to also provide the cure for the Corinthians. So he's looking at the issue that they have had, the sin that they have practiced with regard uh, to what is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he's remedying that issue by setting out a cure for them to consider. And so in verse 1, we see that this is connected to what is said previously. We see it first grammatically when Paul says now, when he says now in verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So it's not so much what Paul is writing first, but this seems to be, if you look at this closely, this seems to be in response to something the Corinthians wrote to Paul concerning the role of intimacy in the lives of men and women. Because what appears to be the case is a response by Paul. If we look closely at verse 1, it says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So when Paul begins to launch into this area, it seems he is responding to something that was said and that something that was said needed to be corrected and placed in its proper context with God in view on how men and women ought to relate to one another. I'm not so sure that it was a thing in which Paul and the Corinthians agreed. In fact, I believe that Paul is writing this as a rebuttal to whatever was written to him. And it seems to be the case as we work our way through uh, this entire chapter that he's calling them to account for something they may have written and responded to that is obviously not considered divine scripture or uh, a part of the canon of God's word. But it is something that Paul is addressing. And what he says is certainly considered God's word. And I'll deal with even those areas where he says I'm saying this by way of concession and not of command. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But here, I believe what we're looking at this morning in the first uh, nine verses uh, are we're looking at what Paul's reply is, but we're also looking at how Paul seeks to correct the thinking of the Corinthians in this area. First, he says, as he replies, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Here, Paul is not contradicting nor striking against the Lord's command in the creation mandate, and he's not doing so against the Noahic covenant. He's not contradicting what is said in those particular passages of Scripture in Genesis where it relates to the mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Paul is not striking against that. What he is saying, if you look at the larger context that we've read this morning, he's saying if one is to choose between the sin of adultery and remain single, then it is better to remain single. I'm going to repeat that again. He's saying if one is to choose between the sin of adultery and remaining single, then it is better to remain single. That is what he's saying. So given the option to sin versus the option to not sin, it is always best not to sin. And so he puts this in the context of how the man and wife ought to relate to one another. 
He does not leave it to the lustful passions to carry believers into whatever means they have to express their passions under a misguided definition of love, because that is how the world thinks and that is how the world acts. The world believes that they can define love and therefore they can define the acts perverse or however perverse or however grotesque those acts are. They believe in performing those acts. They can then define their love for one another. And so what Paul is saying is he is saying that it is better not to be intimate man and woman if that intimacy is rooted in adultery. He's saying it's then better to remain single. He says that first. And we'll look at that even deeply because a little bit deeper because it's also it comes up again in the text. But rather, he says this as well. He says if one cannot remain single because all cannot remain single then it is indeed profitable. It is better to marry, he says. And then he gets to the reason why that is the case. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, but because of immoralities, but because of immoralities. And whenever this word shows up, he is dealing with sexual immorality and perversion. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. Each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband so each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband paul then ensures the believers are not to be carried away into homosexuality into promiscuity or polygamy or so-called open quote-unquote open marriages which is becoming a thing and has been a thing for many civilizations, but certainly is reemerging in the Western context. And all the rest of the world's perversions, Paul wants to cast them down with this statement that he says in verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. So one to one is what Paul the Apostle is writing to the Corinthians. And you can be sure that in their society, this was not the case at large. It was certainly a society where they gravitated in their lust uh, for one another. They gravitated toward the perversions that befall those who are carried off into their sin that are listed even for us in places like Romans 1. He takes them directly as a solution, as a cure. He takes them directly to what God has intended for them. He takes them to what God has intended for them. The lofty and elevated act of intimacy solely in the context of God's marital union between one man and one wife. I believe that, you know, there are many texts in our Bible that certainly apply to the local church context. And they certainly all of it applies to all areas of life. But I believe that there is certainly a heightened sense, even as we look at this text and what it means to the world at large and what it means to so many of the churches uh, who kind of fumble through this and the way that they treat married couples. Uh, I believe that all of this is in view by Paul the Apostle because I believe that these perversions were also making their way into the Corinthian church. And it's not just that. Once you have these perverse ways of defining love between a husband and wife, 
Well, then those acts will then make their way into the church. And then you then begin to define that union on the basis of what man determines and not God. And I believe as a society, we are certainly at that place. So much so that the idea of one man and one woman being together in marital union before God is scoffed at by the world at large. So I believe that Paul sets us right here in this text, and I believe that this is certainly something that is timeless as all scripture is. But he also says beyond the point that we're making, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. In verse two, he says, and with this comes duty, a sense of duty. He says in verse three, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise, also the wife to her husband. This is not compulsion, and it is certainly not perversion. Paul says it is necessary to, within the framework of God's intended union, to be intimate. He says that. Paul does not strike against the fact that God has placed that in the context of marriage to be a thing of absolute beauty. But he also calls it mutual duty, calls it mutual duty. And in this, we see mutual authority, mutual love and mutual honor. And so Paul puts it that way. Look at verse four. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And then he goes on. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. And so with this, you see that sexual immorality, because that's what Paul is correcting, especially among the Corinthians, was not a mutual thing. And it certainly did not honor God. It did not honor God. It was the exaltation of self. For that's what sexual immorality is. Inflamed with the passions only meant to abuse, misuse, and pervert what God had ultimately intended for male and female, man and wife. So Paul wants to walk the Corinthians away from that and to what God truly has desired for them if left with the choice between adultery and marriage. So he's saying if you are going to be tempted to be adulterous, you should then consider that there is a union that God provides. There is a sense of righteous intimacy that God has built into the construct of male and female marriage uh, in the most singular and cohesive sense. I mean that between one wife of one husband and one husband of one wife, he says that this is what God has provided. And so he wants essentially for the Corinthians to have self-control. He wants them to have self-control and an elevated view of one another and certainly an elevated view of what it means to be uh, in God's union. I believe also he's providing the justification and the rationale as he has called for the expulsion of those who are not doing this in the church at large there in chapter five. I believe he's providing the rationale for why we must see immorality for what it is. And so he wants them to choose to be uh, in line with what God has concerning marriage if they're choosing adultery as a counterpart. That is what the comparison is. 
And so in verse four, what you see he's doing is he's setting before them this divine portrait of intimacy and marital union. He shows how the man has authority over the body of his wife. But you see, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. And that's why I say so many in the modern context of religion and of those who fancy themselves marital counselors and try to come to the aid of couples. You see that largely it takes a tone of either chauvinism or feminism. And what Paul is saying is, no, I want you to consider that there is mutual authority vested in both. And he wants them to practice that as if that's the case in the context of their marriage with respect to the intimacy that God has built in. This isn't 1950s, quote unquote, leave it to beaver, nostalgia or sentiment. This isn't that. This is divine and it's timeless. So then he continues. He doesn't simply say the man has authority over the body of his wife. because So many act like that's only the case. He says, likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so you see this mutual authority specifically joined to this context of what Paul is describing as love and intimacy between one wife and one husband. He is describing love. He's describing love. And I believe when we get deeper into Corinthians and he begins to define what love is, I believe that our minds can go back to this because he has defined it already in the context of male and female uh, marital union. He defines it in chapter one with respect to how God has saved us and given us and granted to us the new birth. And then he will define it not only in that area, but I believe that he also will define it as we move forward in the context of the church. How ought we love one another in the church then? If we are loving well in the areas that God has for us with respect to our lives. So here he's describing marital love. He's describing marital love and with it, marital intimacy with him joining husband and wife together to display and consummate their love for one another. He's saying that God has established that, that God has established that in that statement in verse four. You see it very plainly that he's saying God has put this in place so as to help us prevent immorality against one another. And that's not the least denominator for this. That's not the sole motive. But he's saying it certainly is the effect if one is uh, being chased down or pursued by the cause of immorality. And so he describes this for them. You see here, Paul doesn't set up counseling sessions to arrive here. He doesn't set up counseling. He doesn't try to be a mediator between the man and the wife. He doesn't guilt or shame the husband, and he doesn't guilt or shame the wife. He says, this is what God has intended. This is essentially what God has always intended. And so it must be if you are wed together. So it must be if you are wed together. Mutual authority, very specific to the role of marital intimacy. And so you see that Paul wants to deal with this head on because the Corinthians are dealing with this head on, but they are wrong. They are wrong in their assessment of what God has in this area. So Paul wants to cut them off in this sense 
Because I believe even in their response, Paul found something that he needed to help them see in a way that glorified and honored God. So then I would say and I would say it because Paul said it, that deprivation in this area is the devil's playground. And I'll tell you why. Look at verse five. He says, stop depriving one another. He's speaking to uh, husband and wife. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, except by agreement for a time. That's where you see this mutual honor, mutual love, mutual authority, except by agreement for a time so that. Well, why would I deprive this act that God has sanctified within the context of male and female union? Well, he says so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul assumes that Satan is certainly on the prowl and Satan is certainly in this area, among many areas, wanting to dethrone what God has established as his means of uh, his means of a righteous expression of love between man and wife. Deprivation in this area is the devil's playground because there are, as Paul writes, temptations that can stir the flesh. That's what Paul is saying. And the Corinthians were certainly guilty of this. They were guilty of this. And the flesh can succumb to the wiles of the devil. That's what he's saying. This is not an excuse. So he's not saying that in some area find ways to manipulate this. But what he's saying is you have to consider this if you're going to consider what to do in the area of intimacy with respect to male and female union. So it's not an excuse, but it is what Paul describes as an effect to the cause. It's an effect to the cause. He says, if you are depriving one another, not for the reason of devoting yourselves to prayer, then you can expect to be tempted because of your lack of self-control by Satan. And so you see that here. You see it in verse five. Both because both hold mutual authority in this context. It's why he appeals to both and can mutually agree to lay aside intimacy for a time to consecrate that time to the Lord in prayer. So you see that this is a righteous thing that Paul is describing. And so many either tiptoe around this. So many don't speak of this or speak of it in very perverse ways so as to drag the mind into the playground of the devil. But Paul doesn't do any of this. What Paul says is there's a sanctified way of viewing even this, that God has established it there. And he allows for the mutual consent to take place that says, let us put off this beautiful thing so that we can uh, devote our time to prayer before the Lord. So listen to this. Paul does not view prayer then in marriage as an obstacle. He doesn't view it as an obstacle. He doesn't view intimacy as an obstacle. He views the flesh as an obstacle. And in the flesh being an obstacle, because we're at war with our flesh, he says it is necessary to both be intimate and to consecrate the time that you're not intimate to come to an agreement and then say, I will devote my prayer before the Lord. And offer him praise. And I say that because you have to view the flesh as an obstacle 
and not intimacy or prayer because the flesh can cause manipulation in this area. And Paul speaks that way. He says, come together again. Why? Because because of Satan, his temptations come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I believe he's speaking directly to the Corinthians because he's showing them that Satan has tempted them and has exposed them for being those who lack self-control in this area. It's not simply lacking the means to define things properly, but it is to lack self-control, which may cause you to define things improperly. So I believe that, and I remember I remember hearing this a long time ago, and I just I don't think it was said well, but I want to say it well, especially in this context. I believe that intimacy in marriage, as Paul paints a picture of it, is a sanctified time in Christ. I don't believe there's anything wicked about male and female, man and wife in marital union under the eyes of God coming together for that time. I do not believe that. I believe it is a consecrated time by the Lord. And I believe that one can set aside that consecrated time and also devote themselves to the consecrated time of prayer. So it's not trading off lesser to the greater. But I also believe that it is the sure answer and remedy that Paul provides to avoiding the temptations of Satan who seeks to lure us all into sexual immorality. I believe that's what he wants. That's what he wants to accomplish. He wants to pervert our minds. He wants to pervert our actions in this area. And so Paul is teaching the Corinthians and by extension us, how then do we avoid this? He's not saying the passions are safe once you're married. He's saying here's how to understand your passions once you come together in marriage. He's saying this is the way for husbands and wives to be faithful to one another. Be instant in prayer and be instant in the blessedness of mutual duty. He's saying both. It is a display of the fruit of the spirit that's at stake. I believe that at various points, and we have seen to this point up to chapter 7, that he's showing the Corinthians, he's saying essentially show and prove that you belong to Christ. Show and prove. Well, one area would be self-control because self-control is a fruit of the spirit. And so he wants them to demonstrate that they have self-control. Well, here's how. And so as we move through this text, you begin to see that it's not that what he says shifts. It's that he wants to make sure he's speaking to all who are in uh, the fellowship there at Corinth. Because some were not married in husband and wife union. So he wants to deal with that as well. And I believe that it is just as significant and it is just as much regarded as those who are joined together. Paul doesn't argue that they are lesser. In fact, he says, by way of concession, it is better to remain as he was. But I'll explain what that means as well. Verses six and seven are tied directly together. I believe when he says what he says in six, it's not necessarily that it's devoid of what he said in verse five. But I think he's directly connecting verses six and seven together. Obviously, this is a continuous letter. But I mean, as we look at our Bibles, I believe that when he says, but this I say by way of 
concession, not of command. He's leading into what he's about to say, not recapping what he has already said. I think that's an important uh, thing to consider when you look at how this verse is tied together. I think grammatically that is supported as well uh, when he says what he says in verse six from for here. Paul joins that statement. Now, what I'm about to say is by way of concession. Now, I want you to understand what he means when he says first by way of concession, because I know in the past I have personally misunderstood what he means. All scripture is God breathed, inspired by God. It is placed here by his spirit. It is authored by him with the use of human authors who had their full faculties and full capabilities. And we believe that. We believe that firmly, that all scripture is God breathed, profitable for instruction. So I, I, I don't believe Paul is saying something and saying this is no longer scripture. I believe what he's saying is it's not necessarily he's saying by way of concession, meaning opinion versus command. I don't believe he's going there. Rather, what he's saying, and even if you look at the meaning of this word, what he's saying is this is an invitation to consider versus a firm commandment. So he's saying when he says, I say what I say by concession, he's saying I'm granting to you to consider something if you are not yet married. Uh, I'm inviting you into this invitation to consider what God may have in this area, but I'm not firmly commanding you that you must remain single if you desire to marry. And I believe that's the context. In other words, he is inviting the believers in Corinth, if they are able, to be as he was. He's saying, if you're able, I'm inviting you to consider this. A concession is then being granted to you. That is to be single and unmarried. He is not saying, it's why he leads into what he says in verse 6, he is not saying if you marry, you are in sin. Nor is he saying I am better than you all because you are married. He is saying I want to give you the consideration. I want to invite you to think about this along these lines. And if you are not yet married, practice this along these lines because I do believe that it has its advantages. So he makes this a thing whereby they must consider it along the lines of what God may have for them. But he's very particular in how one might know that this is the case. And I believe it's related to the passions. I believe it is related to the passions. Again, I want you to understand what is at stake is immorality versus morality. The world's immorality specifically versus God's morality. That's what's at stake. So Paul is saying, if your passions are not inflamed, it is better to be as he was. That is single. So he's saying if your passions are not inflamed, he's telling the Corinthians, look at verse seven. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Now, he's not saying if you're not, then you can no longer belong to the church in Corinth. He's not saying I'm holier than you. He's saying that what and as we work our way down through this text, he's saying that for himself to remain single, he has been afforded the ability to provide the kind of focus with context to his ministry. You'll see that as we move forward in this text. But he doesn't make marriage an unsanctified thing. 
He makes it a matter of the passions. Paul is saying, as I've said, if your if your passions are not inflamed, it is better to be single. If your passions are not inflamed, if you do not desire to consummate love for someone else, then it is better to remain single. However, Paul, and I believe he says what he says in verse six, I say this. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Paul is not introducing some legalistic standard of singleness as a means of righteousness and spiritual superiority. I believe the same can be said about marriage. For then he would not be resolving the issue of pride amongst the Corinthians. If he was saying this will make you more holy, then we might as well continue to erect this faction. Because he's introducing a standard that I believe would contradict what God has said in the covenants. And I don't believe that Paul is doing that. I think he's saying I'm inviting you to consider if you're not given to the occasion of procreating, of consummating an intimate love for one another under God's marital union, it is okay to remain single. But. He tempers all that he says by what he says continually in the verse. Look at the second part of verse 7. However, each man has his own gift from God. So he puts them on equal plane. Each man has his own gift from God. There's no pride in either case. There's no occasion for pride. There's no occasion for pride with reference to being single as God would have it and no reference to pride. Uh, with respect to being married as God would have it. Because he says each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. And so I believe what he is telling them, especially here, is God has gifted all men. Now, he's obviously speaking when we see all men, he's speaking within the context of the fellowship because God doesn't gift unbelievers. He doesn't gift the world with respect to what it means regarding his union. He doesn't gift them with singleness. He doesn't gift them with respect to a biblical view of marriage, although they are operating under the covenants that tell us to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth as all do. But what he's talking about is the divine giftedness as it relates to the focus upon him. That's why I believe what the comparison is and what we must consider is how one devotes their time before God, whether married or single. That's what's really under consideration. He has gifted all men, some to be recipients of the divine gift of singleness, which he'll write as we progress through the uh, through this particular chapter in the coming days. And this affords a singular focus to God. It affords a singular focus to God. And then listen to this. Some to enjoy the divine gift of marital blessing, which affords mutual focus to God. So you have the comparisons is singular focus to God and mutual focus to God. Because a few verses before, he already says, hey, lay aside your time of intimacy to consider a mutual focus to God. And then he says to the unmarried, 
He says, consider your time to be of singular focus to God. So it's both are focused upon God. Paul is not trying to erect a faction rooted around the family in this regard. He's not trying to erect a faction that says you are to be placed here if you're single and will put greater emphasis or lesser emphasis. And you are to be here if you're married and we are to put greater emphasis and lesser emphasis. It makes you think of the modern evangelical programs that happen on Sundays at many times that really are alienating concepts in many regards. They alienate either or. They make you feel like I have nothing to relate to with respect to singleness. I have nothing to relate to with respect to uh, marriedness. But I'm here to say this to you, that what joins you together is your bond in Christ and your focus for him. Whether you're married and have a family or whether you're single and you don't, your focus is to God. And so all that you do in walking together in fellowship is leading toward him. I can benefit from those who are single just as they can benefit from those who are married. So Paul does not erect another self-righteous standard so that the Corinthians can boast. They were so good at finding those those areas to do that anyway. And I believe the modern church is good at finding these things. They alienate people on both sides of the fence. But Paul doesn't do this. Paul wants singular focus from those who are single and mutual focus from those who are married. Why? Because each then has been gifted by God in this way. What then in view is this? It's the married man and wife do not desire to be single. The married man and wife The husband and wife do not desire to be single. They don't look at each other and go, I wish we didn't have each other. I wish we were single. They don't want to be severed from one another because God has joined them and God has gifted them to regard one another in this context of love, intimacy and affection. But listen to this. Nor then does the single man or woman desire to be married because God has gifted them to be single. And so they don't regard their time as I wish I were married. I can't wait until someone marries me because that is a sure sign that being single is a consequence and not necessarily a gift. And I'm not saying a bad consequence, but it's a gift. Whereas to be single and then to consider that God has gifted one to be single is to then be content with that and to be singularly focused upon God uh, in that regard. But I will say this, because what the Corinthians were doing wrong is they were settling for less in both areas. I believe that you had Corinthians just knowing their society, some who were single and acting like they were married in sin because they were committing adultery. And then you had some who were married and acting like they were single. And so Paul is saying both is certainly not uh, reverent in the eyes of God. But I will say in the context of what Paul has shared to us so far, neither sees themselves as settling. Neither sees themselves as settling. I am only single because I have only gotten married because. No, God has gifted me for what I have and what I am. 
So they don't see their signs of themselves as settling in both. I'm talking about both marriage and singleness because there are no worthy suitors uh, for their love. Because I know there's so many who think and act and speak that way. For it is a blessed gift from God to be married or single. Because that's what Paul says. He says, look, it's better to be as I am. It is better to be as I am. I say this by invitation, but if you're going to try to be as I am and commit adultery, it is certainly better to be married. It is better to be married so that you can enjoy what God has given in the context of that blessed union. Lastly, verses eight and nine, Paul deals with the unmarried and the widows. Look at verse eight. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, those who have lost their spouses. And prior to that, those who have never been married. That it is good for them if they remain even as I. And then look what he says. I've heard so many pose the question, how do I know? I've heard it personally. How do I know if I'm supposed to be married? Or how do I know if I'm supposed to remain single? I believe Paul answers that directly. And it's a blessing he does in verse 9. Look at what he says. It's a matter of self-control. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. Let them marry. Don't withhold. That's a good thing. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It's better to actually be married than to desire to be married. It is better to be married than to sin because you desire to consummate something that God hasn't sanctioned except in the union of male and female. But I will flip it to the positive. That it is better to remain as Paul is if one has the self-control to remain as Paul is. As a demonstration that God has gifted one for it. And so I believe that Paul touches all these areas. Personally, I believe this because each of these, I believe, were under attack by the Corinthians. And so Paul wants to set our thinking straight on what it means to be joined together in the union that God has provided for us. Let's pray.